Good morning. Happy Sabbath and welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study. I want to extend a special welcome to our uh, visitors here uh, in person and those who are listening and watching online. Uh, We are very, very happy to have you. Tim is somewhere else, not here today. I'm Russell Atkins. I'm filling in this morning. We are going to be studying Lesson 10 in the uh, uh, lesson uh, on Jeremiah uh, entitled uh, Destruction of Jerusalem. Let's uh, open with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another beautiful day, another beautiful Sabbath day you've given us. Thank you for the Sabbath itself and what it says about your character, that you are indeed a God of truth, love, and freedom. I want to ask that you send your Holy Spirit to guide our study this morning uh, as we um, apply some of the lessons that uh, should need to be learned uh, in parallels between the destruction of Jerusalem and the times that we live in. Uh, Please bless our group uh, corporately and individually. uh, In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to apologize in advance. I'm fighting a sinus something or allergies or something, so I'll be coughing and sniffing and sneezing and... Etc. Uh, throughout the day, which gets magnified on the microphone. So those who will be listening online um, may want to turn down the volume a little bit. Uh, let's start right off. Sabbath lesson. Well, you know what? Actually, skip that. I actually want to start with Friday's lesson. There's a fantastic quote from uh, Ellen White in Selected Messages, Book One, Page One Eighty Seven and One Eighty Eight. This is a quote I was previously unaware of, and it's fantastic. It's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful quote. And it kind of, I want you to um, think of this as the the umbrella over not only today's study, but the the entire purpose of our group that that we formed and that our ministry represents. We are in continual danger of getting above the simplicity of the gospel. That bears repeating. We are in continual danger of getting above the simplicity of the gospel. There is an intense desire on the part of many to startle the world with something original that shall lift the people people into a state of spiritual ecstasy and change the present order of experience. There is certainly a need of a change in the present order of experience, for the sacredness of present truth is not realized as it should be. But the change we need is a change of heart. That bears repeating as well. But the change we need is a change of heart and can only be obtained by seeking God individually for his blessing and pleading with him for his power by fervently praying that his grace may come upon us and that our characters may be transformed. This is the change we need today. And for the attainment of this experience, we should exercise persevering energy and manifest heartfelt earnestness. We should ask with true sincerity, what shall I do to be saved? We should know just what steps we are taking heavenward. So, what's the takeaway from this? Yes? That impressed us too, because we need to change heart and mind and character, absorb Christ in us, rather than just feel forgiven and covered. Right, or... Or promote a variety of um, different doctrines or um, promote a certain uh, day of worship or a stance on the state of the dead or a, um, a uh, elevated uh, doctrine of the sanctuary or something like that. Okay? Yes? 
Uh, the thing that struck me about this uh, passage here is that uh, I thought, well, even to me, the uh, justification, sanctification, propitiation, and so forth, dealing with the death of Christ, uh, seems somewhat complicated. And um, so when we get back to simplicity, <coughs> we don't ignore those things, but it implies to me that the emphasis is on changing the experience, the um, change of heart, uh, character issues, and so forth. Good. What, uh, <clears throat> if you could be concise, what is the simplicity of the gospel? God is good, and God is love. Thank you. God is love. And every doctrine that we espouse should reveal something about God is love. Everything that we do and believe personally and as a church should reveal that God is love. The creation, the whole point of creation is to reveal God's love. The whole point of the Sabbath at the end of creation is to reveal God's love, and he is a God of freedom. The intent of Adam and Eve was to reveal that God's love. All of nature is supposed to reveal that God's love. From the tiniest subatomic particle to the biggest super galaxy, four billion light years across, it's a revelation that God is love. And if we have a doctrine that, that doesn't reveal that, or if we don't understand it to be revealing of that, then there's either a problem with the doctrine itself or there's a problem with our understanding of it. Thoughts? Yes. And unfortunately, that word has come to mean so many different things in our vocabulary. What word? The word love? The word love. Mm -hmm. And the other-centered giving and, and service is truly what godly experience is, and yet that's often not seen as that word. Right. Yeah, doing what's right and what's in the best interest for others because it's right, not because of hope for reward or fear of punishment, but doing what's right because it's right. Seeking the best interests of others is outward-centered, other-centered giving uh, and seeking their best interests. So keep, uh, keep that the simplicity of the gospel theme in mind, uh, not only as we continue today, but weeks and months and years ahead with our ministry. And if we seem to be losing track, we need to come back to that. Okay, if, we, if we lose, lose track uh, on a personal level, we need to come back to the simplicity of the gospel. If we lose track on a class level, we need, to lose, we need to come back to it. If we lose track on a community, a nation uh, level, we need to come back to the simplicity of the gospel. All right, Sabbath lesson. Uh, this is, you know, again, quoting the lesson and, and also from Prophets of Kings. And there are a lot of Prophets of Kings quotes uh, in today's lesson, so we'll start. Within a few short years, the king of Babylon was to be used as an instrument of God's wrath upon impenitent Judah. All right, how do we understand that first sentence? Beg your pardon? Oh, well, I was just agreeing with you there. How do we understand it? To me, I understand it from the uh, viewpoint that um, God withdrew his protection from them. 
And it uh, seems like down on further here, it gives that impression. I just don't quite remember where it was in the lesson. Okay, hey, good. And it depends... It depends on your filter. It depends on your mindset. It depends on any preconceived notions that you're reading this with. And we need to, we need to read passages like this and texts from Scripture and uh, have our conversations with others with, with this in mind, that whatever preconceived filter we have, we may be viewing uh, what we're reading or what we're talking about through an erroneous conception. Okay, because when... When you read about um, Babylon to be used as the instrument of God's wrath, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Yes, Wendell? We could replace the, the proper names within this um, sentence. <laughs> yes, we could. Um, with things that would apply to medicine. So, you know, the instrument of, of the physician's wrath upon the diseased patients and yet it's not directed at the patients mm-hmm. it's directed at their disease well said again and again jerusalem was to be invested or surrounded and entered by the besieging armies of nebuchadnezzar company after company at first a few only but later on thousands and ten thousands were to be taken captive to the land of shinar there to dwell in enforced exile jehoiakim jehoiachin zedekiah all these jewish kings were in turn to become vassals of the babylonian ruler and in turn were to rebel. Severe and yet more severe chastisements were to be inflicted upon the rebellious nation, until at last the entire land was to become a desolation. Jerusalem was to be laid, laid waste and burned with fire. The temple that Solomon had built was to be destroyed, and the kingdom of Judah was to fall, never again to occupy its former position among the nations of earth. <clears throat> I, uh, I did a simple internet search, um, seeing how many times Jerusalem had been attacked or destroyed. Anybody have any ideas? Anybody read, check this out beforehand? According to the source I read, Jerusalem has been completely destroyed twice. Like leveled, rebuilt, leveled. It's been besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, and captured slash recaptured 44 times. Sounds like quite a vibrant history for such a lovely city. That's all biblical too. You're not talking about after the Old Testament. Yeah, I, good question. I don't know. I don't know what the time period, the the end time frame is, uh, whether it you know, takes us up to present day or not. I, I honestly don't know. Should have uh, should have looked. Um, Sunday's lesson: Weeping for Tammuz. How many knew what who Tammuz is, or was, or was supposed to be? Babylonian god, okay, what um, what was special about him? The god Adonis. I think that was the... uh, That's Greek. Roman version was... Well, okay, good point, because there's there's a lot of transference and a lot of, uh, you know, copywriting and co-opting these same god concepts throughout time. Um, you know, from Babylonian from the Babylonians, you know, Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans to present day, to, you know, the Christians to present day. He was a major Babylonian god. He was believed to die every summer solstice, um, which is June twenty twenty one. Um, therefore, women would spend six days weeping, mourning his death which brought on shorter days. We have a decreasing 
decreasing light uh, starting June 21. Days started getting shorter. And it's bringing, you know, in, in Babylon, which, you know, was, in my understanding, is in present-day Iraq, uh, it, it brought on the, the harbinger of, you know, searing summer heat, burning crops, uh, you know, less, less rain, waste, destruction. And he was resurrected six months later, the winter solstice, making December 25th time of celebration. Sound familiar to anybody? What are, some of the, what are some of the parallels that we can see through, um, throughout time with the, some of these deities that, um, that we've become aware of, like Baal and Ashtaroth and Diana and um, Tammuz, Ra, just to name a few? What are, some, what are some of their commonalities? They have to be appeased. Appeasement is one of them. It's a big one. What are the threads of commonality do we see? They commemorated some major force. Life, sun, dark, cold, warm, crops, sexuality, all the yes. thing was very pragmatically real that if a simple mind doesn't or a primitive mind, I don't know what to call it, but if they don't understand where those things that those are cycles of nature that have existed, they think that it is something that Boy, if it doesn't start getting warmer, we're never going to get you know any crops. We're not going to eat next year. Or mm-hmm. um, that you would start worshiping. Right. I believe that uh, Scripture <coughs> talks about the beginning of worshiping the celestial bodies even before the flood. I, I don't. I can't quote a verse, and if I'm mistaken, I apologize. Um, and, th- and these people that existed before the flood were incredibly, incredibly uh, powerful. They're incredibly smart, uh, and yet we can see that in a few short generations that the neglecting of a knowledge of God can lead to the worshiping of a celestial body, worshiping the sun. Many of these, many of these major gods are sun representations. Which is which is another way of, of worshiping, who's described as the bright and morning star. Yeah. Lucifer. So is Jesus. Yes. But Lucifer, his name is Phosphorus, light bearer. And and like was mentioned here, so we have appeasement, we have uh, a thread of sun worship. You know, Tammuz became Osiris, which became Baal, which became Zeus, which became Jupiter, which became St. Peter, on and on and on. Uh, and in addition to appeasement, uh, they had a, they, many of them had a sexual um, fertility uh, manifestation of the god. Uh, and many of them involved, sex was, in, it was, sex was a sacrament, it was like an offering. Okay, I, I discovered this in, uh, in, in some of my research. The foulest Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite, which apparently was one of their gods as well, and have intercourse with some stranger at least once in her life. Many women who are rich and proud and disdain to mingle with the rest drive to the temple in covered carriages drawn by teams and stand there with a great retinue of attendants. 
But most sit down in the sacred plot of Aphrodite with crowns of cord on their head. There's a great multitude of women coming and going, passages marked by a line run every way through the crowd by which the men pass and make their choice. Once a woman has taken her place there, she does not go away to her, to her home before some stranger casts money into her lap and had intercourse with her outside of the temple. But while he casts the money, he must say, I invite you in the name of Mylita, which is the Assyrian name for Aphrodite. It does not matter what the sum of money is, the woman will never refuse, for that would be a sin. The money being, the money being by this act made sacred. So she follows the first man who casts it and rejects no one. After the intercourse, having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess, she goes away to her home. And thereafter, there is no bribe, however great, that will get her. So then, women that are fair and tall are soon free to depart, but the uncomely have a long wait because they cannot fulfill the law. And some of them remain for three years or even four. Sound fun? Does it, yes, think, think, get your minds around this, folks. This is how, this is how far, this is how dark the mind gets when you reject the knowledge of a God of love. You think that it's your duty as a female to go sit in the, in the courtyard of a temple and have some stranger, uh, solicit your sexual favors. What does it say about the man? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, correct. What does it say about the entire society? Amen. For for you feminists out there, I wasn't directing that only. The, I wasn't saying the women are only at fault here. Okay, whoever whoever created this whole concept is it, it, it darkens both minds equally, men and women. You could be a rich pervert, and, you know. I mean, yep, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How different is it than today, though? I mean, when you watch National Geographic and see some of the, the customs that are there yep. amongst this world, you know, if this world were to continue on and history were to be written about today's time, how different would it be? Yes, genital mutilation. Um, I, I just heard it on NPR yesterday that there's some Islamic sect that takes a soldering iron to a woman's clitoris and solders it, so she will be less... Um, uh, less sexually uh, arousable and therefore not tempt men into uh, a lifetime of sin. You know, have we really come that far since Babylon? So, what's the, what's the problem with weeping for Tammuz? We're basically offering a sympathy for the devil. Do we see do we see this theme today? Do we see any sympathy for Lucifer today? We be, we become like the god that we admire. Thank you. Yes, that's right. It's it's law. It's natural law. So if if we um, have a god that is truly evil as a basis evil, then and we do not perceive that then we are going to become like that evil God. That's right. You are what you behold. But, but if we worship the true God, but we attribute to him satanic characteristics, we're still going to, it's still a law. Okay, it doesn't matter whether it's a God of stone and wood or the actual creator. 
if you if you attribute to them satanic characteristics, then you your mind will become darkened. Again, there's a passage in Prophets of Kings which I didn't write down, but it says that you know if you attribute a false god concept, it's just, it's just the same as worshiping Baal. It's, it's idolatry, pure and simple. That's a succinct paraphrase. At the bottom paragraph of Sunday's lesson, it talked about you know Ezekiel's discussion of the worship of of these foreign dig, uh, gods, etc., and that the the text could really be a little ambiguous. In fact, it could mean that they were worshiping in their minds, in their yes. hearts. It truly wasn't in a room. It was in the heart, in the room of their mind or their heart. And I think that goes back to what we have as struggles as well. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so if we truly are dwelling on, have our deals of, or whatever, something within our mind as being the ideal, then that's truly what we are worshiping, whether we realize it's, or we, whether we call it worship or not. Right. Yeah, we all worship something, whether we admit it or not. What, um, so, you know, in, in Ezekiel, in this chapter in Ezekiel, um, the Lord says, you know, Come with me, I'll show you even more detestable things. And come with me, I'll show you more detestable things. And what, what makes these things detestable? Other than women soliciting strangers for sex or vice versa. They're destroying what God has as a deal for his human. Thank you. They're detestable because they destroy the mind. They destroy the mind and the body. Because they're contrary to design law, they're contrary to the way life was ordained and designed to be lived. And therefore, they only lead to death. Okay, why is cancer detestable to a physician? All right, Monday's lesson, the unhappy reign of King Zedekiah. Who was uh, one of King Zedekiah's advisors? Jeremiah? Jeremiah was. Our prophet, the, the person we're studying uh, this quarter. How'd that work out? Zedekiah had a true prophet of God as one of his advisors, and yet his epitaph is he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Just like Saul had Samuel as an advisor, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. How... I guess my um, consider consider Zedekiah's last, the last thing he saw. Have you guys pondered this? Any what was the last thing his eyes saw? His children. <laughs> his children being murdered, and then a knife coming toward his eye to pluck it out. I'd like to have that for a memory. Last, your last thing you saw, your own children being slaughtered and your eyes being gouged out. That gives gives me chills. I've always taken I've always, I've always taken good eyesight for granted. Now that I'm I've turned fifty and and my uh, reading I need reading glasses and it really ticks me off. <laughs> it it, ang- it angers me. Join the club. Uh, you know, my, my poor sister's worn glasses since third grade. I, I guess she's used to having glasses on. I, I am not. 
and I happened to come today without them, so I've had to to, to magnify the, uh, the uh, I'm way ahead of you, Karen. It's already done. Thanks. Or I'll I'll have I might have you hold it up for me, Karen. I can, I can read it from there. <laughs> but that's kind of that that's kind of my one of my internal kryptonites is to go blind. It's just the the idea of going blind gives me chills, shudders. So much more information from your eyes than you do from your other senses. I, I agree. I agree. Although Helen Keller said she'd rather have her hearing than her sight. She, you know, being devoid of both, she said she'd rather hear. I I don't know. I think I'd rather see. Balance and uh, it's, it's there's there's so much to see. Anyway, well, one one wonders how um, how deeply Zedekiah, um, you know, being having his eyes gouged out and having that memory in his head, being imprisoned in in chains in, in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, palace, one wonders how he lamented not following the advice of of his uh, his advisor Jeremiah. At the time, though. What Jeremiah was, was recommending is that you surrender and become a slave. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so that didn't sound like good advice. I know. That, but those were my thoughts exactly. I, when I was studying for this lesson, I'm thinking, if I had been Zedekiah, I don't know that I would have listened either. And it's opposite of what they've been preached to by other prophets. You know, the other prophets were, you know, let God conquer the nation. Right. You know, let God do this, do this, do this, in order to take over the other nation. And this was antithetical. This is to me the big deal about Jeremiah. That's correct. The message was so different. And the ones that came in and gave the message that they'd heard before, I guess we talked about it a few weeks ago here, but Mm -hmm. um, they were the the false prophets. How would you have discerned at that time? At the time. And how do we discern now? That, That was... Those were two big questions of mine in, in prepping for this lesson. How do we discern? Okay, because when a when a message that com- comes in that is contrary to, and we'll touch a little bit on this in I think Thursday's lesson as well. Um, but it was so contrary to the Judeans and and and, and the children of Israel. It was it was contrary to their. Their DNA, almost that you know, nope. You guys are becoming are going to become captives of a pagan nation. But hey, go go there and be happy and and yes, submit yourselves to your to your captors. Do we know anything about what it was like to be a captive in in Babylon? I mean, we 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 hear the story about Daniel and he got the feed, food of the rich guys and and all that sort of stuff. But I don't imagine that was the plot of the ordinary person who was taken as a slave or... Even Daniel, I I suspect, was castrated. Yeah. But there there were several kings in that Babylon. Babylon, There there were waves of the takeovers. They didn't take everybody. They had a very systematic way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, They let some people go. It wasn't Manasseh. He was taken away, and then he was let go to come back and rule again. So I think that Cyrus and Xerxes, I think the guys that were over 
Babylon at that time, and don't go. That, that, that's that's Persia. Guys, is that Persia? That's not the same one. Nebuchadnezzar was the last okay. last Babylonian king, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was all under Nebuchadnezzar then. Well, Belteshazzar was. No, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. his son, Belteshazzar. His grandson. Okay, and that's when the that's when the Medes and Persians right. invaded. His grandson and, was ruling whenever the, the, it fell. So right, but yeah, that's. They had civil. Maybe they were more civilized, and maybe it wasn't as bad as it would have sounded like. I don't know. As I recall, the, the, they had warning. They they were told uh, this is what is coming and all the rest. So um, Jeremiah's current message at that time would not have been a, a first time of hearing it, I didn't think, right? No. In fact, God told Hezekiah um, generations before, you know, these these folks uh, whose emissaries you showed the, the treasures of the temple, they're going to come take them eventually. But it, but it won't happen in your lifetime. Hezekiah said, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Good for me. Did Isaiah talk about that? Because I think Isaiah was alive during Hezekiah's reign. I think he was as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, in fact, Isaiah prophesied his death and then you know got out the courtyard, had to turn around and go back. He said, hey, my bad. Yeah. Lord just told me that um, put this poultice of figs on and, and you'll, that boil will heal. The Lord's added 15 years to your life. Um yeah, how, how, do, how do we discern? One way is if it comes true, but that doesn't really help at the time. Yeah, that's right. That, that involves... Yeah, what else they said, and is have to look at the reliability of what they have said. It's not, it's not all future tense. Okay, and so... The guy that got died, remember the one that broke his yoke? And, and he had the message that everybody was more used to hearing about, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to conquer the nation and everything. And... Jeremiah says, not only are you wrong, you're going to die within a year. And he did. So, I mean, there's... He died within two months. Yeah, well, I think he you know? within a year, yeah. before the year was out. So, there's an example of Jeremiah had some gravitas to what he was saying, things that he had said that can prove. One of the things I came up with is in, in wrestling with this problem is that should we lend more gravity to the message or the messenger? message the message itself okay you lend the messenger gets um credibility by delivering the right message but still the gravity is in the message itself but put yourself back in the time of jonah and apply what you just said to the ninevites you would have totally discounted jonah well, maybe. I, I don't think you have. I think. Go ahead. For Jonah, I think that was great. I mean, here it was. They were a fish-loving, revering nation. Here John was the god. A guy who had probably physical effects of being inside a fish. Yeah. You know. And. Um, out of the fish, most likely. Yeah. You know what more perfect way of speaking to a fish-loving person that a person comes out of the middle of a fish and comes and talks to you. You know, I mean... God was a fish, so he comes out of the mouth of a fish. Yes. And doesn't the book of Jonah say that the fish vomited him up on shore and fishermen were there, you know, on shore? It was seen. So, yeah, it was witnessed by Ninevites. 
So here comes a fish, Ralph's up a uh, a man, probably you know skin bleached from you know digestive juices and acids and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe seaweed hanging off his ears. You know who knows. And then comes in and preaches uh, imminent destruction. That that might get your attention. Destruction didn't happen. That's right. It didn't because the Ninevites listened to the the prophet. They listened to the messenger. Okay. Do we do we really believe that uh, Babylon would have um, God would have removed his hedge of protection if Judah had not humbled themselves and returned to God? Okay, God knew that that wouldn't happen, so He said, <laughs> "I I know your hearts. I, I know they're like stone. You will not repent. Therefore, this is what this is what you can prepare for." If He had known that they would humble themselves, I suspect Jeremiah's message would have been far different. But then look at Noah. For 120 years, he preached the coming of the flood, and only eight people. Yeah, imagine being patient for that long. Listening to that, uh, you know, once a week or every day or once a month, you know, who knows how many how many times people were exposed to that message. And um, you know, they the people got to the point where they scoffed and mocked at him. And we see parallels today. You know, our church has been preaching the second coming for 150 years, and it hasn't happened. But you imagine there are people that uh, take that with a grain of salt. Take you know, there's maybe some cynics involved uh, in that. In that. Yeah, okay, as it was in the time of Noah. There are. <coughs> what is interesting is the the base of peoples that are calling for the return is broadening. It's not just <coughs> this church that's that's calling for it. Yes, it is, and but it only takes a quick uh, trip to uh, internet message board to see um, just how cynical uh, some folks are. <clears throat> One of the things I find very entertaining is going to a, a news site and scrolling down and reading the messaging, reading the comments on the story. Uh, it's very entertaining. I would uh, <coughs> encourage you to do that. God bless them. Yes. Someone says, Lord be with them or or something. And then you just get the deluge of the skeptics. It devolves into one of two things. It devolves into um, uh, a liberal or Democrat, I mean, a Democrat or Republican argument or an atheist, um, you know, God believer argument. It doesn't matter what the story is. You know, you know, puppy saved at sea. You know, it's Obama's fault. <laughs> Bush caused this. Well, also the the concern that I have is is that when you see the references to God coming back to Jesus's return, is a different Christ than I'm expecting. That's right. <laughs> you know, why is he coming back, and what is he going to do when he gets back, and what's he going to be like when he gets back? Is a different individual than what I've come to, to believe. That's right. He's coming back with a rod of iron, and he's going to rule the nations with it and trample the grapes of the nations under his wrath, etc. Et I have to wonder if, if our perspective of the return 
second return process, the events and what's actually going to happen, is as skewed as the Jews' concept of their Savior's return. Oh, I, I don't think there's any question. I, I, I'm i fully on board with that. I, I really think that... Um, you know, as as much as we have tried, you know, our church has tried to predict um, what and and occasionally when. Yeah. You know, against the advice of scripture. It's not just the church; it's mankind in general. True, true. But you know, even even the remaining remnant, um, we have ideas about how it's going to happen and what we can do to um, to position ourselves. Uh, you know, and and if the remnant think that they're the only ones that Christ is coming for, they are grossly mistaken. Right. You know, and you consider, you know, Elijah thinking he's, I'm, I'm it, Lord. I, I'm, I'm all that's left, and and Lord kind of slaps his wrist. Well, no, you're not. I've got what four thousand or something. Seven. Yeah. Seven thousand, six thousand, four thousand, something. A big number. Yeah. That haven't, um, haven't compromised their uh, integrity and bowed to Baal. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, sermon today at the College of Community Church. We're studying Jeremiah also, and he mentioned something very meant a lot to me today. He said he gave a quote, which he really does, from Sister White, and he said, in the quote, she says that things may not always happen the way we planned. That all the promises of God are conditional, which means that even the way He's coming. All the things that we have lined up as a church, what's going to happen? It's all <clears throat> things could happen. God could change like that. It doesn't change His principles or anything. But the way we think He's going to do things could change like that. Yeah, His promises and His threats are conditional. Yeah, yeah, and the condition. And why is that? What what fantastic attribute of God's character? In full unselfish love, he gives free choice, and then he is responding. He is reaching out to us, but allowing us to have the free choice, and then then adjusting the way that he is seeking and reaching us according to what we're open to, according to what we'll listen to. And thank you. He is a God of freedom, yeah. and there are there are a load of Christians that don't understand the true concept of freedom. And sadly, there are a load of American Christians that, that have a completely warped sense of, of freedom. Okay? And America, you know, the nation that is supposed to be founded on principles of freedom. And yet we're one of the most coercive governments on the planet. We just hide it better. Think about it. Tuesday's lesson. From prophets and kings, uh, and I, I kind of think that the Jeremiah's continuous, the continuous thread running through uh, Jeremiah's message was more or less, quote, through Jeremiah, the word of the Lord to his people was, <coughs> return thou backsliding Israel, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God. Turn, O backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. Thou shalt call me my father, and shalt not turn away from me. Return, ye backsliding Israel, and I will heal your backslidings. Okay, this is a 
This is a parent dealing with a willful, wayward child. This is a physician dealing with a non-compliant patient. Pleading, yearning, please change the path you're on. That's from Providence and Kings 4.10. The king, Zedekiah, was even too weak to be willing that his courtiers and people should know that he had held a conference with Jeremiah. This is after Zedekiah had, had a, uh, you know, a secret uh, meeting with Jeremiah. So fully had the fear of man taken possession of his soul. If Zedekiah had stood up bravely and declared that he believed the words of the prophet, already half fulfilled, what desolation might have been averted. He could have said, I will obey the Lord and save this city from utter ruin. I dare not disregard the commands of, the God, of God because of the fear or favor of man. I love the truth, I hate sin, and will follow the counsel of the Mighty One of Israel. So, this passage, this is also from Prophets and Kings, page 458. So what she's telling us is that Zedekiah didn't follow Jeremiah's advice primarily because He was afraid. He feared the uh, thoughts and opinions of his of his subjects. Do we see any parallels today in churches, in governments, in families? Truth is determined by polls. That's right. Truth is truth is crowdsourced. I like to say, it, if it's popular, it must be true. Or tradition. Or tradition, or because, well, we've done it that way for generations. It's good enough for Grandma, it's good enough for me. It's good enough for my pastor, it's good enough for me. Nobody, nobody looks favorably upon weakness. I mean, if he had followed Jeremiah's advice, I mean, wouldn't that have set him up? Looking pretty weak. In some pe- in some people's eyes, it would have. But again, you know, she gives us some insight into his character. He he was so concerned about himself and the way he, he looked and the way his character or his uh, his legacy would have been. Instead of caring about the citizens of his, the 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 city and the the territory that he was given uh, command over. He cared more about himself, so he sought to save self, and in doing so, his eyes gouged out. So if the President of the United States decided to surrender to, to, to Canada, how would he be viewed favorably in history? <laughs> I think that's what we're looking at, really. Can you blame the guy, really, for... You mean if, if Canada was Babylon? Yeah. Or better yet, if, if he decided to surrender to radical Islam. Right. Because, you know, radical Islam wants... You know, wants to Congress, they'd probably let him capitulate. Uh, yes, <clears throat> um, I don't know how, what his legacy would be. It, it, it. Um, fodder for discussion. Any thoughts on? It's also very interesting how Nebuchadnezzar handled, handled uh, Jeremiah. Yes, he was very respectful of this man. Now, maybe it was because he had told the king to surrender. I don't know, but. Seemed like he pretty much 
got it better than that. You know, I mean, I think the lesson says that. He seemed to understand better than well, I, I think uh, certainly that Nebuchadnezzar was open to, uh, he had avenues open to truth, as evidenced by his uh, dealings with Daniel and, and the three wise men, even though he he went off on a variety of tangents, uh, you know, having the three worthies cast into fire and building the idol to begin with and, and um, you know, losing his, losing his mind and, you know, eating, eating grass and like animals. He still was open to the the um, you know, the uh, the influence of truth. Sorry, I, I interrupted. He was a normal human for his time. Yeah. Consider for a minute how difficult the Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, must have been, and not only on Jeremiah but on God Himself. Don't you think that God wept? To see to see his his children taken captive and and to uh, to see the city you know, destroyed, temple burned to the ground. Well, Jesus did. Right, Jesus wept for Jerusalem. Absolutely. Okay. Do you think Do you think that God will weep when the new Jerusalem is established and those outside the wall try to attack it? Okay, I. I I grew up, and I, I doubt I'm the only one. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I grew up with the, with the image of, of God, you know, gleefully raining down fire and brimstone on the wicked, with the righteous standing on the wall applauding him. That that was my view of of the, uh, the destruction of the wicked. I've I now have a complete 180 degree view of that. I I see God, you know. Crying, weeping, uncontrollably. But how many Christians see it that way? Hardly. That's right. It's still a prevailing theme in, in Christianity that, um, you know, yeah, you guys are going to get yours. Just wait. Just wait till I unleash my limitless power. That's because they it kind of they mirror each other. It's because that's how they view God. Correct. So that's that's how right. They view each other. Exactly. Um, toward the end of uh, Tuesday's lesson, it talks about um, the um, Babylonian general Nebuzardan or Nebuzaradan. Look at how he look at how he um, his uh, concept of the law of liberty and his dealing with Jeremiah. What he tells Jeremiah from. Jeremiah 40, verse 4. This is... Um, now, Jeremiah had been imprisoned at this time, and, he's, but, and this is Nebuzaradan speaking. But today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon, if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. It's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. For a, you know, the general in a uh, in the army of a pagan nation, to to have a concept um, of the of the law of freedom. Thoughts? Known more, understood more, had a different belief set than 
the limited data you have on him would lead you to believe. Sure. That's, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's, we're not given a deep insight into his upbringing and his character. And look at Patton as, as blood and guts and, and see the obtuse side of Patton. But I, I have a feeling that there was, there was more to Patton than you read in the press. When Jeremiah was arrested, um, he was trying to leave and go to, to his homestead in the land of Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And um, it says that uh, in our lesson this week that the captain of the guard from that doorway accused him of, of, of mutiny or, or treason, treason, yeah. treason mm-hmm. and, and tried to flee to the Babylonians. So he probably wasn't the only person who had escaped out of the city and had either been captured or at least had been interrogated by the Babylonians. And so a knowledge of who he was and what he was trying to do on the inside probably was well known. They were there for two years, you know. Yeah, 30 months each, eventually. And so um, it was probably well known who he was and what he was doing and, and mm-hmm. you know. To me, it also reinforces that the truth is not limited to uh, a given people. It's to whatever heart is open and receptive to it, and also the ability to act in a wonderfully ethically way uh, with uh, the best heart uh, involvement in the decision is not limited to a certain people. It's to the, any individual that's open and receptive. That's very well said. Like Paul says in Romans, you know, those who have no knowledge of the law but do by nature <clears throat> things written in the law are law to themselves. Um, hmm, Wednesday's lesson. With all your heart, or excuse me, all your heart. I guess my question here was, which comes first? A change of heart or the seeking with all your heart? Or is there a difference? It's not all. It's a kind of, you know, one, it's not one or the other because it's not with all your heart or the other. I think you have to start with a kernel and you seek a little bit and then a little bit maybe gets converted to believe with that kernel of your heart. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing hop-skip process. I mean, you have one which leads back to the other, which leads to the other, which leads to the other, and it's snowballs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- that was kind of the conclusion. That yeah. conclusion I came to is that um, <clears throat> it wasn't um, it wasn't an either or. That um, the actually, I think the step that it was eliminated is that you get to know you do, you get to know. God or Christ, and you get to know their true character, which which transforms your character, which leads you to want to know more, which continues the transforming process, and it's an endless. It's like learning any subject. The more you know, the more you want to know. The more you know, the more you know. By growing grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, you know, you're going in grace. Mm-hmm. Truly, you're not. You don't wish for someone to give all their heart to someone they do not know. Right. Yeah, that can be destructive, can it? You see this every day. The lesson uh, lesson makes this personal. 
Um, what has been your experience with this promise, promise and it, referencing Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Uh, anyone care to comment on? Let's make that let's make that personal for them. And we're we're in a, you know we're the Sabbath before Thanksgiving. This is the this is a a, a holiday unique to United States of America. Um, it, it's something frankly, that we should be thinking about all the time, how thankful we are. But uh, in this particular uh, season, uh, we, we pay special attention to it. With that, though, in, in building the relationship and being able to recognize and appreciate the loving touches of God and how, uh, you know, whether it's the gorgeous sunrise, whether it's uh, um, a beautiful, you know, fall day like, mm-hmm. day like today, whether it's the... However, you recognize that kindness and love of God coming through and growing and building that relationship as that, as you allow your heart to be changed and you take down the walls of defense that we so often put up to protect our hearts and you open your heart up to God, then the seeking with all your heart, you found somebody that you can trust, that you can respond to, that is safe to get to know and to be able to trust and love thoroughly then that can turn the heart to seeking with all your heart, and then that's when you'll truly find him. Mm-hmm. Well said. You know, the thoughts before we go to Thursday's lesson, 70 years. I just wanted to add a comment. You yes, please. It's a- nice to have you back, by the way. It's- I love being back. Um, thinking of Adam and Eve and how they were perfect, and yet they had a character to grow uh, and a knowledge to t- uh, attain about God. Like, they didn't... Then we know him, and so they lost trust in him. They were designed perfectly. Yeah, yeah let's, let's make that clear. They were each, each you know, designed they perfectly. process ahead of us because we're not near what they were to start with. Right. It's the gap between infinite and finite. Yeah. It will never be closed. Right. Seventy years is no drop in the bucket. It's no time. It's no short time period. Uh, you know, even, even back then when, you know, lifespans apparently were longer. You know, Seventy years is only slightly less than the the average lifespan of the U.S. male. You know, our our lifespans are seventy six point three years on average. <clears throat> Think about how, how how difficult it must have been to come to grips with the idea that oh, we're in captivity. As someone my age, I knew I, if if I'd been taken captive and said, "Okay, you got seventy years," I would have just said, "Well, I'm going to die in Babylon. I'm I'm never going to see my homeland again." That'd have been really that'd have been difficult. There's a, a parallel. The children of Israel, when they were coming through the wilderness, a whole generation had to die yeah. before the generation behind them were came into the into the kingdom or into not kingdom, the but promised they, land, yeah. the promised land. And um, a whole generation pretty much had to die before they could return to the promised land mm-hmm. and start again. And yet there were some who were alive to see both temples, and they wept. They wept at the, the when they saw the second temple. Mm-hmm. But even with God's advice, you know, to to settle in the land and to to find uh, spouses, uh, you know, for your children and to to marry and have children of your own and to seek the peace of the of the nation you've been carried captive to. Well, are there some valuable lessons that are that are being taught here? Okay, the children of Israel had had been raised. You know, they're, they're they're coming out. They've been steeped in this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life mentality, and 
And, you know, <clears throat> when they invaded Canaan, went to take occupation of Canaan, they were, t- they were told, eradicate every living thing. Wipe them out. And then, so now, now they're being led from this mentality to a step toward love your enemy. You know, settle and enjoy yourselves. Uh, grow vineyards, build houses, have families. Seek the best interest of this nation that's taking you captive. Okay, this this is this is another step along the pathway to love your enemies. It's, I, I just get back to the concept of these people were slaves in a foreign land, and to think good of your masters, who I don't think human nature was better then than it is now. Yeah, exactly. And to think that you're going to treat your master with respect and with kindness and with diligence and whatnot. Sometimes when I am at my employment, I have not always um, warm, fuzzy thoughts for those people who are... Yeah, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> Holding the wallet the first ring. My boss can be a yeah. horse's rear end. Do you get one of those too? No, I don't. <laughs> I'm my boss. I was being... I was being yeah, yeah. <laughs> what... One last, uh, one last quote from Prophets and Kings, and we'll wrap it up. You know, this is written, you know, 100 and how many, ever many years ago, uh, and it's even more applicable or apropos today. The present time, the present is a time of overwhelming interest to all living. Rulers and statesmen, men who occupy positions of trust and authority, thinking men and women of all classes have their attention fixed upon the events taking place about us. They are watching the relations that exist among the nations. They observe the intensity that is taking possession of every earthly element, and they recognize that something great and decisive is about to take place, that the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. The Bible, and the Bible only, gives a correct view of these things. Here are revealed the great final scenes in the history of our world, events that are already casting their shadows before, and the sound of their approach causing the earth to tremble and men's hearts to fail them for fear. Okay, now... If she observed these things back in the late 1800s, middle to late 1800s, how much, how much more, um, how far have we devolved since then? Okay, she was, bless her heart, she was laid, she was laid to sleep, laid to rest before two world wars and a countless variety of uh, regional conflicts, ethnic cleansing, et cetera, et cetera. Our heads. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for the gifts that you've given us of prophecy. Um, help us to be discerning with the message and with the messengers. Help us to know, uh, to love the truth so much that we uh, are so deeply rooted in it, we cannot be moved. We will not be swayed by false prophets, false teachings, false doctrines. Uh, Please continue to mold and shape our characters to that of Christ so that we can hasten his coming. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.